Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this episode comes from LinkedIn. If you're in sales, you know cold calling is stressful, especially when all that effort isn't even leading to sales. It might be time to take a more informed approach. The new LinkedIn Sales Navigator uses data to provide insights and recommendations at a scale impossible for humans, unleashing seller superpowers and increasing revenue. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash trial. That's linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as Bilbo Baggins's long-lost little sister, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, I'm really excited to be talking to filmmaker Peter Jackson, but Casey Newton, it's not about why there are three Hobbit movies. Although he's probably best known for those Hobbit movies and for directing The Lord of the Rings, his newest film is a documentary about the First World War. It's called They Shall Not Grow Old, and it uses state-of-the-art technology to tell the story of World War I without making it seem like ancient history. He's joining us from Los Angeles. Peter, welcome to Recode Decode. Talk a little bit about how you got to doing this. I saw a little bit of an intro to the movie, but why don't you tell what happened and how you decided to do this? Well, thanks for having me, Kira. I mean, I I wish I could claim credit for deciding to do it, but what actually happened was I was in um, I was in London about 2013, uh, I think it was for the uh, the premiere of the last Hobbit movie, and I was invited into a meeting for the Imperial War Museum, who were at that time they were preparing a program of of commemoration events and and commissioning uh, various artistic things to do with the centenary of the First World War. So that was from 2014 to 2018. And so they uh, told me that they had a a concept of doing a documentary that would be screening in the UK in November 2018, which is the the 100th anniversary of, of, the, um, of the end of the First World War. So from my perspective in 2013, it was five years away, felt like a long time at that point. And they asked me if I, if, if I was interested in doing the, the documentary. And there was an open agenda, really. It was like I, I could do anything that I chose to do. And their only proviso was that I used their archive footage. So they wanted to have their, you know, their library of original First World War footage used. But the thing that threw me was they said that, they, um, that they'd like me to to use their archive footage in a, in a fresh and original way. And and the words fresh and original kind of was <laughs> a little bit of a dilemma. I mean, I've, I mean, I've watched decades worth of First World War documentaries. They use the same film. It's jerky. It's fast. They, you know, they, the, the, the soldiers look like sort of Charlie Chaplin characters. It's scratchy. It's mm-hmm. got... It's got breaks in it, and that's what I'm used to seeing. So fresh and original was a sort of a, a thing that I couldn't quite understand. They they didn't have any real sort of guidance for me. So I, so I went back to New Zealand, 
And I thought about this for a, a few weeks. And what, what, I, what I wondered, and this was a question I asked myself, and it was a, it was a real question, I didn't know the answer to it because I've never done it before, is I, is I started to wonder how well we could restore this old footage with all the computer tech that we have now. And I've never done it, so I didn't know, but I thought, can we actually make this 100-year-old footage look like it was shot? Now you know, you know, so it's sharp, it's clear, it's stable, it's 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 it. You know, it, it looks it looks like modern. That the, the speed of the footage is is what we would expect to see as a normal speed. It's just you know. So I asked them to send me three or four minutes of film just to let me experiment for a, a few weeks, and they sent me four minutes of of just sort of ra random First World War shots that they had scanned at two K, and I'm in. New Zealand at Park Road Post with our effects team, and um, and we set about sort of an analysing the film, analysing the problems with it, and the problems are a lot to do with the age of the film and the damage that's been done in, in the last hundred years. You know, in the sense of of um, scratches of of the way the film's snapped and broken and was spliced together and frames have been lost. And and often the, the footage in their archive is a duplicate of a duplicate of a duplicate. So it's got all this grain that's built up. And and we we sort of looked at each of these particular sort of um, areas of damage with the film and, and tried to figure out individual ways in which we could fix fix it. So 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 was each each particular piece of damage had, had to have its own solution. So we so it took so it took us quite a while and I had no idea what the results would be. But eventually after four or five months, Park Road Post, which is the the company that I have in New Zealand, they got me in to look at the results and and I was amazed. I mean they, they had managed to figure out you know, using the computer software that we have now, they'd managed to figure out ways to make this film look incredibly sharp, uh, normal speed. The human beings in the film, you know, just emerged from the screen for the first time. So that was the very, the very beginning of the um, of the way that the project began. Okay, let me just say, they delivered actual film to you that had been redone and redone and redone again. Is that correct? Well, the film, I mean, the, the film in their archive varies because, you know, they, they just have an archive of First World War films. So, some of the film is, is, is like, you know, you, you, you have to imagine that all film originates with a cameraman filming the original neg negative. So he's got a camera, he's got neg negative, 35mm negative, and he's filming. And obviously th these guys were filming between 1914 and 1918. Now, since then, some of the film has in the archive has been has been copied and copied and copied, and what they actually hold in the archive is not the original film anymore, it's... It's a duplicate of a duplicate of a duplicate, and each time the grain builds up. Sometimes they hold film that's a that's a little bit nearer the the original neg. I mean, you know, it sort of varies all over the place. So, I mean, the thing is, is that, is that when you're looking at looking at the hundreds of hours of film they have, you're also looking at hundreds of hours of different sources of different qualities of different, you know, different sort of. Um, of of the of the damage, some of it's more damaged than than others. You know, it's completely all over the place. And what was the technology that they were using at the time? These are hand crank cameras, is that correct? That they were doing these films on? Yeah, the technology in in, in World War One was pretty much the same as they were shooting. You know, obviously Ch Charlie Chaplin films and D. W. Griffith films and all those Hollywood films that were shot around that time. It was a the um, camera, and and I've only seen you know photos of. 
these cameras, but they're wooden, they're wooden boxes um, that are about 18 inches square, six inches wide. They're on a, a tripod. They've got a lens that they, I think they can alter their lenses. They can, you know, use a, a close-up lens or a wide-shot lens. Um, but the key thing that's different today is they didn't have a motor to run the film because there was no reason to do that because that only came in when they had sound, uh, which is like 1927, 28. So when you're dealing with the First World War, 1914 to 18, you're dealing with a, with a camera in which the, the speed that the film is shot is entirely depending on, on the handle on the side of the camera that the cameraman at the time is, is rotating the handle around. And, and, I, and I was led to believe in all the books I read that the you know the sort of official speed of the silent film was 16 frames a second, but but we quickly realised when we sort of an, analysed the film, we realised it was so wrong that we had everything from 10 frames a second, 11, 12, a lot of it 13, 14 frames a second, some of it 15, 16, occasionally 17 or 18 frames. But when you also think about it, you've, you've got a, a cameraman who's under shell fire or gunfire. I mean, they're trying to get as close to the action as they can. They're staying behind sandbags. But their heart rate and adrenaline <laughs> that they're experiencing would, I would imagine, affect the speed that they're rotating that handle around to some degree. So, I mean, you can take a 10-minute you know, roll of film from the archive. It has 25 or 30 different shots in it. And every single shot is actually filmed at a different speed because the cameraman is simply just they're rotating that handle by hand and depending on what conditions they're under, I'm imagining the speed is going to vary. Right. And so you get this film. You try, try this out with the, with the film that you brought back to your studios. And explain where you are. You're in New Zealand. You have these very high-level, high high-tech studios there in New Zealand that you've built. Well, what we have in New Zealand is, I mean, I've got, you know, a company called Park Road Post-Production who does our, the post-production of our films, but they also have a, a, a department of, um, of computer effects guys. And... Um, so I knew that I had the best people in the world really to actually to to pull this off. And so when I when I asked myself that question, which was like, how well can we restore this? I knew I had people that could actually, you know, devote themselves to try to do that. And and and, and, and it involves, you know, that that you take this film, you 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 figure out what's wrong with it, and it's you know, it's largely, as I say, damaged from a hundred years of sort of 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 uh, use and neglect and just general wet wear and tear and um but but also involves what it, you can't actually just do it off with off the shelf software so right. one of the things we do have there is we have a, a, a department of code writers who who write um computer code and software so largely what we do in in the films we make and this is like you know I'm I'm discussing modern films like the hobbit movies and things now is we would take off the shelf software that's available and you often write a sort of, a, you know, a plug-in. Mm -hmm. If there's a particular thing that you want to do that the software isn't capable of doing, then you have your own department of um, software software writers to actually author little kind of plugins that you can plug into the commercial software. And so these guys um, set, set about looking at this old film and figuring out ways to correct it, to fix it. And, um, and obviously the, the results that we see are in the film. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back with Peter Jackson after this. His newest film is called They Shall Not Grow Old. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. 
Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this episode comes from LinkedIn. It's hard to make great decisions when you have lousy information. It's even harder when you don't have any information at all. LinkedIn can help you overcome these challenges with technology that translates comprehensive, high-quality data into dynamic insights so you can make better choices. They call it deep sales. Their next generation LinkedIn sales navigator is the first deep sales platform. With 950 million plus members, LinkedIn is able to access high quality, first party comprehensive data on companies and buyers. The LinkedIn sales navigator can provide insights and recommendations at a scale impossible for humans unleashing seller superpowers and increasing revenue. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash trial. That's linkedin.com slash trial for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. So do you consider yourself technical in that way? Because this is really a technical challenge of what you were trying to do with this film with, in terms of restoring it and, and making it real. Because you're right, the herky-jerky, the idea that it's a Charlie Chaplin movie and things like, you know, that kind of look. Is What was your goal artistically and technologically from your perspective? Well, the first part of your question, I, 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 I'm a completely hopeless um you know, uh, computer guy. I mean, if if I can send an email, I feel I've I've had a fantastic day. <laughs> um, I'm really, I'm really, I am the last person in the world to to look at for any computer expertise. I mean, all all I can do is I can say to this team of much much cleverer people than me, you know, we need this 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 film which was shot at 13 frames a second to look like it was shot at 24. Can you please have a go at that and let me know when there's something to see? I mean, that's honestly, I mean, that's as far as my expertise extends. So I don't claim any mm-hmm. knowledge of computers, any knowledge of actual the, the technical side of it. All I, all, the, all I can say is that you you hire very, very clever people and you ask them to do what you'd like them to do and they go away, do it. And I can't even, I can't begin to describe to you what, what they actually do because I have no no idea. I'm completely completely dense in that regard but but I mean what what I was trying to achieve though is the I mean to me it was it was actually it came down to one thing which was we're using this this old film and and we've you know we've seen this old film everybody in the world I'm sure most likely has seen first world war film at some point or or another and and we know what it looks like it looks like sped up weird grainy you know out of focus uh, splices, scratches, it's just jumps all over the place. And so it sort of presents us with a view of 100 years ago, but through a fog of film damage and all the stuff that sort of presents... Uh, you, you know, it's like a barrier between us and the actual people that were being filmed. It's, it's a barrier of, of of the fog of time and film damage is just like there is this thing that makes it very hard to connect with the actual human beings that were being filmed. So what I found, though, having restored it, is that, and you can get rid of all that. And, you know, if you can actually eliminate that that fog, 
that barrier of, of, te- of technological limitation or, or the damage of 100 years, then the result, which, which to me was incredibly surprising, although in hindsight it shouldn't have been surprising, was that the people that were there become, they become hu- human, human beings again. They're moving at the same speed as the bus, which means that we can see their body language, the nuances of their face. We can see every little twitch and, th- and, and, and expression that they do, and they suddenly become real. You know, the, so the humanity comes back to the people that were being filmed, and it's a humanity that's been sort of that's been obliterated by the simple the the technological defects of a hundred years has 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 made it impossible for us to connect in that way. And if you can remove that, you suddenly realize they're, they're people just just like us. Let's talk about first the colorization of it, because one of the things that's very shocking is to see the colorization. And not just, I, mean, I understand the herky-jerky element that you remove, and so you get it to be regular, as if they're walking through movies you would see now. Talk about the, the, the different elements. One is that removing the speed. The speed is critical, which you've talked about. But what about the colorization? How did you approach that, that concept, and how was that done? Well, I, I mean, look. The one thing I've got to say in a completely honest way is that I, I, I entered this project not knowing what I would be doing. You know, as as I say, the, the I was asked to do a film, asked to use the original footage in a unique and original way, and I really was just feeling my way through it. I didn't have a grand vision. I didn't sort of have a a, a film that I, I that I had in my mind for years and years that I wanted to make. I mean, I didn't. Um, so this was a way of me sort of finding my way through it piece by piece. And so once we had restored the black and white footage to black and white, so we're still dealing in the black and white world, mm-hmm. but it was so sharp, it was so clear, these, these, these people, the, the men were coming to life, they were human beings again. Then the film began to sort of piece itself together in my mind. It, you know, the first thing that happened at that point was I thought, well, if the people who are being filmed are coming to life in such a sharp and, and, and intense way, then the only voices we should hear should be of the men that fought this war. So at this point I went into the, back to the Imperial War Museum and the BBC and I asked them to send me all of the audio interviews they'd conducted with veterans of the First World War. And we're, and we're talking about audio interviews that were done in the 1960s and 70s. In fact, I actually said to them, don't send me anything from the 80s and 90s when these are very old men, because I didn't want the voices in this film to be ancient, sort of feeble old men. I wanted them to be a little bit younger than that, um, you know, in their late 60s, early 70s. And, and at the same time, I thought that as well as the men themselves telling their own story because they suddenly had come into such a sharp relief, you know, in terms of their humanity was just was just restored and they should be telling us their story. I also wanted the film to now become the, you know, to become a reasonably accurate view of what they saw. And the veterans, you know, the, well, the men, I mean, not even the veterans, I shouldn't say that, the, the soldiers that were in the First World War, they didn't see this war in black and white, they saw it in colour. And I know that colorization has got its sort of its detractors, which is fair enough. I mean, if you have a director in the 1930s that chose to use black and white film stock, a, a, a director of photography who carefully lit it in to, to make the most of the black and white image, and you suddenly, a few decades later, smear sort of color, color over it, then you're actually, you are defiling the artistic vision of the people that made that film. But that's not what you're dealing with here. You're, you're dealing with with, our, um, with 
people that, that the government hired, filmmakers that were that were government employees with the agenda of going to the Western Front in France and, and uh, Belgium with their cameras and recording the First World War for posterity. It was the first time ever that a war could be recorded with a uh, moving picture film. Obviously, this, obviously, the American Civil War is a very famous in the sense that Matthew uh, Brody and many other f uh, um, um, photographers were able to take photos. So it's the first war where we had black and white photos. The First World War is the first war that we really have um, that we have film, moving film. And that was deliberate. It was that the British government had wanted they, that they wanted to record this war for for posterity and and, and certainly for for propaganda use as well. I must say, um, but but I just felt that like if a cameraman was packing their bags to go across the channel to the Western Front and somebody came in and said, "Okay, here's your film stock. Do you want the black and white film stock or do you want the colour film stock?" Then then they would have chosen the colour film because their job was to record this war and as accurate a detail as they possibly could, so obviously they would have chosen colour. But of course, colour didn't exist, so they had they didn't have that choice. They were only given black and white film. So to me, you know, converting this into colour with the agenda basically of making the making it as close as we could approximate to what the soldiers themselves actually witnessed and saw that what that had no issue at all, and it was, it became a fairly obvious thing to um do. How did you pick the colors then? What was the how? How did you think? Because smearing, you're using the right word, smearing of colors. When they have colorized things, people have been have had problems with that. And obviously, I get your point that it was just these were government photographers and and videographers essentially. But what what were you thinking in terms? Of, how did you decide on the colors? Was that an artistic decision, a technological decision, or? And I want to get to sound also because I think sound is a critical part of this movie. Is that sounds the behind sure. the scenes sounds that you sure, hear. Yeah. So talk about the how did you pick the colors and what to do? Were you trying to be purposely not too much, not too bright? I mean, the, the last time that this had been done, which I think was I think surprising when you're in the movie theater, is is the Wizard of Oz when you're in black and white and then you suddenly get to Emerald City and the color pulls up, which I think is the time where people have seen that transformation. Well, I mean, that, the, the Wizard of Oz is a little different in the sense that they shot the first twenty minutes or so in, with black and white film stock, and then they switched to color film stock. Right. You know, they, I mean, in this particular case, there was no color film stock; it was all black and white. So we did have to resort to to what they is known as colorization. Um, I mean, the thing that I that I found, and I hadn't done done this before, so again, I'm just learning and discovering as I go along. The thing I realized with colorization is that the technology of colorizing something has existed for, for quite a long time. But the quality is totally dependent on the amount of manpower or labor that you put into the job. So in other words, if you take a shot, a black and white shot, and you're going to colorize it, if you say we want this you know, to be done in, in four or five days, which I suspect is what a lot of the colorizing we've seen, is you know the, the, the budget the budget requires it to be done at a certain amount of, of of pace. Then you get the result that's the best result that you can get for that four or five days. If you can say to people, well, you can spend three months doing this shot, then you're going to get a whole lot better better result because the color the technology of the colorizing is not new. It's it's old, but the quality depends on the amount of time that you spend. Now now, now if anybody that's that's hearing hearing this podcast. If you just lift your eyes up and you look around the room, 
you know, you're not seeing seven or eight colours, you're not seeing eight or nine, you're seeing thousands of colours, thousands of colours and all that, and all their shades and their nuances, you know, that you might have a, have a, have curtains that are green. Well, they're not, they're not, if you look at the curtains, they're actually, they're, they're 500 shades of green. Even though they're the same, it's with the light and the shadow, it just creates a whole So what I realised with colorization is the longer you can spend on it and the more labour you can put into each shot and just add, you know, nuances and, and shades of colour and shades of colour on that, like every blade of grass has got a slightly different shade, then the results become so much more real. And, um, you know, look, to be honest with you, if, if I could have spent twice as long, on colorizing the shots, we we colorize about three hundred shots, right? Uh, you know, for this film, you know, um, black, black and white first world war shots that we colorize about three hundred. And if I could have spent twice as long, then the results were probably would have would have been tw twice as good. But obviously, every film has 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 a um, a schedule and a budget that you have to stick to. But I but I was happy in the sense that we probably spent longer on colorizing this footage than anyone had done before. So in other words, so we did get. Um, better, better results, um, and and the colours themselves were. I wanted them to be accurate. Now, fortunately, we're dealing with the army, so you know, uh, uh, back in New Zealand, I've got a big collection of First World War uniforms, you know, of all sorts. British, Germans. I've got, I've got um, artillery, tanks, guns. I've got all sorts of things because I've been interested in the First World War my, my entire life, and I've got a big collection of stuff. So, the colours of the of the actual uniforms of the badges of the the military equipment was pretty straightforward and we just, you know, we knew what those colours were and we had to make them look as um, accurate as we could. But um, then we come to the landscapes because when you, you realise that there's the soldiers are there with their uniforms, that's the easy part, but they're, you know, the, the, the bulk of the shots, some, sometimes the majority of the shot you're looking at is not, not army or military or soldiers, it's actually fields, it's trees, it's grass, it's sky... And so what I did, what I did, and, and I wasn't sure if I was being being a bit insane, but about um, a year and a half ago, I rented a car, and I drove around all by, all by myself. There was just me alone by myself. I drove around um, the battlefields of the Somme in France, the battlefields of Flanders and Belgium, and I spent two or three days, and I photographed thousands and thousands of photos of the fields, the uh, the, the trees, the hedges, the the crops in the field, because they, they, you know, people think of the First World War as being a muddy, grey, overcast war, but it was fought for, you know, I mean, that, and that was probably true of the winter months, but if you're looking at, like, the Somme Offensive or any of the battles that were fought during summer, then, you know, there was green grass, there was blue skies, it was fought under very bright, sunny conditions. Yeah. And I wanted, but I, but I still wanted to make sure that the, the vegetation of that particular part of the world of of the of the Somme area in France in northern France and the um, Flanders area in Belgium I wanted to make sure that we were showing the colors to be accurate to that part of the world you actually drove around and took pictures with with an iPhone or with just a, a how did you uh, no, do that? No, I had a camera. I, I had a <laughs> no. I, I did slightly better than a uh, iPhone. I had a proper, you know, thirty-five. But wait, I mean, it was a di digital camera, but it was a, it was a sort of a, a slightly bulkier um, Sony camera, in fact. But but I was just taking photos. I was just I'd stop it. I just drive around, stop at a field, take a panoramic photo of that field, move and drive another mile or two, stop, take a photo of that. And, and in some cases, I actually found the exact locations that some of our shots were. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, the, this is a, um, 
Yeah, the, the Western Front, were, in terms of the British Army, is not that vast. It's about 80, 80 or 90 miles of, of, of land, and we know exactly where the trenches were, so it's not that hard to actually to pinpoint a black-and-white shot that was filmed in 1918, 1917, 1915, and it's not hard to actually stand in the exact spot where that cameraman was in and actually was filming that shot. And, you know, the the hedges and the trees and the grass today would be no different to the colours that they were then or, or the mud, the, you know. I took lots lots of photos of mud. And and even though the even though the trenches have gone and the for that although the, well that's actually not true. There are there are a lot of trenches still still there. Um, but the sort of the muddy kind of shell holes have gone. The shell holes are all covered in grass now. But but even so there were still fields because it's like a, a farm land, there's lots of mud, there's lots of you know, dirt around, so I was, I was particularly photographing the colour of the mud to make sure that we got that right. Well, you got the mud right. Let me ask about two colors that I was really particularly struck by. One was when you when you moved to the colors of the machines, which I thought you did beautifully, the green on the machines, and then the blood. That was what was I think the most disturbing is is when you see those pictures of the of the trenches you 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 do get a sense that it was terrible but this just it brought it up to a new level all the dead bodies the dead horses you had dead animals um, body parts and stuff it was really it was it was so hard to look at and yet you couldn't look away at the same time and the color had a lot to do with it I completely agree I mean. You know, well, the, the, the colours of the military equipment, like the tanks and the guns, that's a historically sort of known known colours. In fact, there's museums in Belgium and London that have tanks that are that have not been restored. So you can see a tank in the actual original First World War paint is still is still on the tank. So so that, that I mean that stuff is not hard to to get right. Um, the and the colours of well, I mean obviously you know the same thing. We we know we know what blood's like. We know what the colour of blood is. It's not it's it's not a debatable thing, but I agree with you. I mean, we are used to seeing black and white shots of bodies lying on the ground, and once you add the blood, I mean, people bleed. They they you know when they get, when they get any, anybody, if you cut your finger in the kitchen, you bleed. And these guys, if they get bullets through them and shrapnel through them, they bleed a lot. And um, Look, I mean, I wasn't out to exploit anything, but at the same time, I think the opposite of of um, exploitation is to sanitize. And I think it's equally important not to sanitize. And so, uh, you know, I wanted to present, as, as I say, the you know, the, uh, the this film, I mean, it sort of found its own shape in a way over a period of time as we did everything I've described. But one of the things that, it, you know, that was clear is that we should just simply be showing and hearing the soldiers talking about what they experienced in this war. And, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, one of the things they experienced was there were dead bodies lying all over the place, uh, you know, and if there's dead bodies lying around, then they're going to have a lot of blood on them. And it wasn't an attempt to sort of artistically push or push the film or to shock people. It was just an attempt to show it like they would have seen it. Yeah, and also the feet, also the trench feet. And the, that's the, you know, people, I've read about that so much and then to see it for the, to actually see it in the way you colorize it was disturbing and fantastic at the same time. Well, the thing with trench feet is it's basically gangrene. And, I mean, we used to, in the modern world, we often see images of gangrene from mountaineers that are sort of climbing Everest and their feet, you know, get frostbite. So it's more, it's sort of, in today's world, we're more, you know, familiar with it as being a product of frostbite and gangrene sets in and that sort of, and you've got to sort of amputate the toes or the legs. But in the First World War, the gangrene 
was the result of basically rotting feet mm-hmm. uh, because you were standing in water uh, um, for weeks and weeks, weeks on end. And this is like during the winter months. It wasn't always like that. In the summer it was dry. But during the winter months when the rains came in, the soldiers had little choice but to have their boots and their feet immersed in, in water and mud and with little relief so everything would be saturated in water and it doesn't take long. I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, how long it takes, but within a reasonably short time, I imagine, if, you know, a week or two, your feet begin to rot. They literally, I mean, it sounds awful and it is awful, but they rot. And when they rot, gangrene sets in. And, and in the First World War, it was, it was known by a name, it was called trench feet. And if you had trench feet, you basically had rotting feet, and there's only one way to fix it because the gangrene that's set in is going to is going to kill you. It's going to go into your bloodstream, and you're going to die. So they had to chop off their feet. So that's a, just a it's just one of the things amongst many other hardships that these soldiers had to um, de- deal with. And obviously, the army were fixated on trying to keep their feet dry. So they they introduced whale oil. They bought pots of whale oil in and got the soldiers to, to smear their feet in, in the whale oil, then put their socks on, then put more oil on, then put their boots on in an effort to try to sort of fend off the, the water from rotting their feet. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with director Peter Jackson. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. The sound. I think the sound to me was the most moving part of the entire thing. Not just the people's voices, but everything going on behind them. Can you describe how you decided to do that in terms of of doing that? Because I think it brought, as you said, brought people that didn't seem real alive. Well, I mean, that goes back to that initial... Well, it wasn't the initial concept. It was actually a concept that came about once we restored the footage and things. Is that we, you know, we decided that we have to present this film as realistically as we can in the sense of, like, you know, making the film, which has always been black and white, it's always been jerky, it's always been scratchy, making the film look like it was shot today, but it was shot 100 years ago, so it's like almost like a time travel situation. And to do that is, in addition to the colourising of the footage and the 3D 
um, dimensionalization of the footage, we needed to have sound because it's obviously silent footage. And if we were, if we really wanted to go to achieve our the, the what became our agenda, which is to to show this the way that you know as close as possible to what the soldiers would have experienced, sound was a very important thing because as they certainly they heard sounds as well as saw these saw these images. So fortunately, um, again back in in Park Road Post in New Zealand Park Road Post production, we've got a very good team who who won Academy Awards for adding sound to silent pictures because people don't really realise that when you deal with these modern effects movies like the Hobbit movies or the, or the Tolkien or the Lord of the Rings, a lot of the footage is actually silent. You know, if you've generated a shot of a dragon of Schmaug in, a, in his gold chamber with thousands of coins that are throwing around and jingle, then, then that shot comes to us as a silent shot. There's no sound recorded, it's silent. And so we have a sound department who look at it and add minute, detailed sort of sound effects to it to make it seem real. So I was able to throw all this footage at those at that, at those, at that same team of people and say, please just give me a soundtrack that makes it sound like we were there, that there was a sound recordist recording all the sounds that we see on screen. Don't, don't add any artistic you know, flourishes to it, just simply you know, give us a soundtrack that sounds realistic. And... Part of that was, you know, the difficulty, I guess the hardest part of that, I mean, it's easy to add horse hooves and gunfire and um, all the, you know, the jingling and the jangling of the equipment. That's the easy part. The hard part was when we had soldiers talking. Right. Because all that we had were their, were their lips moving and obviously we have no record of what they were saying. So we we, we managed to, um, to find some forensic lip readers. And I had no idea these people actually existed, but there is a, a group of people, a very small group of people who, lead, who, who read lips of silent footage, mainly for law enforcement. So if there's a security camera footage of a break-in of a bank or a, or, a, or a shop and you've got the robbers sort of, you know, because they're not recording sound but there's, the security cameras are showing them doing what they're doing, then they, they try to read the lips of what they're saying to get clues of who they are so they can they can catch them and solve the crime. And there was this small group of people that do are incredibly skilled, unbelievably talented at looking at, at moving lips and figuring out what these guys are actually saying. And so we sent all of our shots. Anytime we had a, a somebody, a soldier on camera talking, but, you know, didn't know what they were saying, we would send it to, um, we had two or three of these um, clever forensic lip readers who were who were working working with us to help us and um, they would come back and with a, a written thing and say well this is what we think this guy's saying and and then and then what we had to do then is we had to work out what the regiment was because as you can imagine in the UK and you know there's a wide range of of regional accents and you can't have some, you know, even if you know what a soldier's saying or you're the lip readers, people t tell us that this soldier's saying this, you can't take a Yorkshire, a Yorkshire or a Lancashire re regiment and record a, a voice of someone from Kent or London or Somerset because it just won't fit because they're, the, the, the rhythm is so different, the vowels are so different. So we had to then do a whole range of research to figure out where these guys came from in each of these shots, and often there's no record, so it was a lot, lot of, of detective work to figure out, okay, well, we're looking at a regiment, we're looking at a, at a Norfolk a Norfolk regiment, so therefore we're going to find an actor in Norfolk who can recite the lines, and we're going to fit those with the lips. And um, and and you know that the lip readers got it right because they actually do fit. That they that they don't. They do. They don't. It it, it doesn't look wrong. That the vowels and the consonants and all the sort of shapes of the mouth, it's it completely fits, which was quite extraordinary.
Right, it was. That was a really interesting thing because at first I thought it was actually them on tape. I, I couldn't tell. I mean, it, it was a really interesting way to tell the story, especially when they were going by them and the guy said, oh, we're on film now. And that's what he was saying. That is what he was saying. And especially around especially around their mouths. It was really interesting to look, especially the teeth, actually. The te- some of the teeth were pretty awful. But Well, then, um, yeah, the, te- the teeth are a whole different story. The British, the British de- dental... Technology of uh, of the um, turn of the nineteenth century was um, was certainly something to be uh, something something to not to not be proud about. I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> so can, can I, I want to finish up with two different things? Is where you think sort of storytelling is going? But but for to finish up on this movie, so you what we're trying to do here is just tell the story of these people in a way that modern audiences could discern, or what to get to the heart of what they were doing. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what it became, and I'm not, and again, I'm not claiming any great genius thought at the beginning of this because mm-hmm. I had no idea. But what, what to me, what had, what it evolved into through all the, you know, the different, different um, things that we've described is that to me it became apparent that what I, the film I was really making, and I suddenly sort of realised this without actually having, you know, intended it particularly. The film that I was really making was a film in which the, which people today. We're still, we're, even though there's no survivors of the First World War, there is still the next generation. So in other words, what I mean by that is that if you have a, an elderly grandfather or great-grandfather, then it's possible, and it was a world war, it's, 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 a lot of the world was involved, it's possible that their father was a soldier in this war and that they heard a lot of stories from their own father who's no longer around. Now, I just hoped that... Yeah, and this is what I this is actually what I'm trying to hopefully achieve with the film, and 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 it became sort of slowly dawned on me as I went through it, is that it's the last period of time that the younger people can ask their older relations, the elder members of a family, who did we have in the First World War, and I think if people can ask that question of their of the older members of their of their individual families, they're going to get all sorts of stories. That in 20 years' time, they're going to be gone because that generation will have passed. And so I hope, I really, and because look, the First World War is, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of books, thousands of books written about the war. There's lots of documentaries. If you want to know about the First World War, there's all sorts of ways to find out. But I think it's more important right now, and all that really, all that I was interested in is, is, is families, that, that we are all, you know, a lot of people in this world are descended from people that fought in this war, that their DNA is in our bodies. We are so connected to them and that it's an opportunity that, and it is the last opportunity. I mean, those soldiers are gone, but the next generation hasn't and the next generation heard a lot of stories. It's the last opportunity we've got to actually, for, for, for families, for individual families to collect their own family history. And that's what I hope that this film, film actually inspires. That's terrific. Um, I'm going to finish up just talking for about uh, just a few minutes about where you think storytelling is going. Obviously, you're well-known. It's funny that you say you're not very technological because a lot of your movies are very technological. There's a lot of special effects going on. There's a lot of things. Mm. And you have this studio there. How do you look at storytelling going forward? Because this is a really simple movie in a lot of ways, you know, compared to mm, a lot of yeah. things you do, which, which are no, very I, complex. I, I, I agree. The, I mean, of all the options, of all the ability that we had to sort of do something, we ended up with actually something that's almost the most simple. Mm-hmm. The most simple result, which is just have these soldiers through their archive tapes, which have, by the way, been in archives for 50 years. Anybody could access these tapes and and use them. I mean, it's not it's not well. I mean, we didn't discover a hidden a hidden stockpile of mm-hmm. tapes. They were been sitting there. 
and we just simply use them, use these soldiers. So I agree with you, it's very simple. I mean, I, I look, so, I mean, technology, I mean, everything's different. I mean, look, on one level, I, I kind of try and use technology in the modern films I make to simply, you know, show incredible things that, you know, in terms of the story, what's intended by the script, like if it's a Tolkien script or, or the Mortal Engines film we've just made or what King Kong or whatever it is, you know, I try and use technology to give people an escapist piece of, you know, entertainment at the movies and believable. But what I actually kind of like about this movie is it's almost the polar opposite in a weird way is that you're, you're using technology today to try and make this film of 100 years ago look as close to being what the cameraman saw. So, you know, if you can imagine you're, you know, you're a cameraman in the First World War and you're, and you're cranking the handle of the camera and you're filming and you're trying to stay alive, what the camera filmed is one thing, but what you, if you just glanced past the camera with your own eyes and you saw this in colour 3D, these these images, that's what we're trying to sort of almost bypass the the film and the camera and you, but, but still use the film, which is, which is all we have, obviously. Use the film to give a much more realistic impression of what, the, of what would have been happening in front of that camera. And I love the fact that 100 years later, there's technology that, that these guys back then would never have dreamed about. I mean, who who would have ever thought if you were shooting on the Western Front in the First World War that 100 years afterwards that this this computer tech, which, I mean, <laughs> I mean it's almost it's almost as unbelievable to even think, think about it, that these, these guys have no idea what was actually going to be uh, um, uh, possible in, in 100 years' time. I do love the idea that we're using all this technology, but we're using it to go back in time and to kind of to transform the film in, in the way that we're doing. Do you try not to depend too much on technology? You can imagine doing this via drone shots or 3D or all the different things that are coming. Does that... How do you look at all those technologies as they sort of? I, it's that's a longer discussion for you and I, but and not here. But well, I mean, you know, the the, the advantage the advantage of it, as you say, is I don't, as, and as I've told you, I don't have any ability. I mean, I can't I can't do this stuff. If if somebody said to me, sit down and and you know you know transform this film or restore it or colorize it or create a dragon, I don't have a clue how, how to do it. I mean, I've just <laughs> got people, very clever people, that do it for me. So from that level, I don't actually get too obsessed with it because I literally don't know anything about it. So therefore, I don't I don't sit in, in bed at night and think about the code and the software and and the pixels and I don't do that. I don't think like that. All I think about is story and, and character and and I think what you know what the technology is is just a, a it's a step. It's a technique that you have available to tell a story. And I don't, you know, so I don't get obsessed with the technology. You know, I make sure that I know where, where the development of it is so that if I want something to be on a film, I know that I'm not asking for something that's completely impossible. And, and, it, and it used to be impossible once, a lot of things, but now it's sort of less so. It's, it's really most of what you can imagine in your head you can actually do on film now. But So to me, it's not, I mean, you know, the technology is no different than just... Any other aspect of filmmaking, you you know, you want to tell a story, and you just tell the story as you need to. Whether and, and you know, if you need to build a set, you get timber, and you get nails, and you and you hammer a set together, and you paint it, and you make it look like it's a you know you know whatever it is, you know, a piece of Middle Earth or a piece of ancient Rome or whatever it is. And computer technology is no different if you want to show something and you can't build a set because it's too vast what you're imagining or it's too huge or it's too expensive and you have a computer do it it's no different to, to um 
to the timber and nails and paint approach, you know, in my, my mind. Well, that's a perfect way to end. Uh, Peter, thank you so much. This is a wonderful movie. Um, and they didn't grow old. It's really it's really quite a moving movie and it really oh, does fantastic. bring thank together so we're one. And I really appreciate you talking to us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Peter, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks to you all for listening. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about this show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. And if you want to know more about this movie, it's in theaters on December 17th. Now that you're done with this, go out and check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. <laughs>